Broadcasting to you, the world from the top of the nation's sexiest national monument, the Mount Rushmore in Rapid City, South Dakota. It's the Mount Rushmore Podcast. America's top ranking podcast. And by that, I don't mean that we are top in the charts. We are... um, we rank the top four of any given topic, and this episode's topic is the Mount Rushmore of live albums. And let me introduce the band on bass guitar. It's Richard Manfredi. Rock and roll. On lead guitar and tambourine, it's Michael Winfield. Howdy. <laughs> and I am the roadie sitting off the stage with Aww. a... Fully tuned guitar, ready to swap in for the out of tune guitar in case they break a string. <laughs> I'm Jeff Hawkins. That might have been the best. That might have been. I know we're off on a tangent, real quick. That might have been one of the best SNL um, sketches ever with Tom Hanks, who just played like a roadie who kept coming in and oh, yeah. checking things. Yeah. <laughs> it was so subtle. Wasn't that? Oh, that was the uh, Aerosmith. Maybe when Aerosmith was, was at a was in Wayne Wayne's Worlds. Like Wayne's uh, house. Oh, okay. And yes. Tom Hanks was uh, like Garth's cousin, who was their roadie. There you go. roadie. That's cool. That's cool. That's silly. Uh, I love it. Was it Ralph Brown? There's the guy who was the. Was it Wayne's World 2 where they go meet the world's oldest roadie or something like that? <laughs> and the same guy. Uh, never mind. Okay, tangent. Um, this is the Mount Rushmore of. Live concert albums, and these guys are going to are are way into music, and I am, but I'm not as knowledgeable as they are. So I'm excited to hear what their choices are. And we do have a Mount Rushmore of live concert albums submitted to our good buddy Corey Wish, a listener to the podcast and friend, long time through kickball and entertainment and all those other things. So we'll see if any of these guys pick Corey's picks. And we'll see uh, what great picks they have. So Richard went first in last week's episode. Uh, so Michael Winfield's going to go... Wait, no. Michael chose this. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. So we have to obey. First but, of all, we're going to know why you chose it. I am always fascinated by live albums and concert albums. Yeah. I think that they are a way that... What's the word? Lugubrious? The, when you're so lugubrious... <laughs> uh, it's Richard's a, studying for his SATs, which she's <laughs> taking many decades after right. she probably should have. Uh, recreating a concert experience is very tough to do. Yeah. Uh, experiencing music live is sounds so different, feels so different, and sometimes um, concert albums or live albums are, one, either a direct translation of any given concert or... There's something that are slightly different. Yeah. Oh, that, cool. Like a live album can be very, uh, like a change of pace, a different way in which a band records an album uh, live, or just like something that, that you as a listener will never experience. And I think that'll happen with some of my picks. But sometimes there are things like, I am never going to have ever experienced Woodstock. Yeah. And... The closest that you can get, in theory, is to either watch the film Woodstock or listen to the album Woodstock or never have gone to Woodstock 94 or mm-hmm. whatever, like, that feels so vastly different from the first. Like, that is might have been set in the same place, but, like, having Metallica there. and Yeah. I mean, Limp Biscuit kind Limp of Biscuit. brought it down to 99 <laughs> a little bit. Like, those weird things, like, that is not, obviously, like, 
you know, the cultural touchstone of it, you know, the, yeah. a generational important event. And like, I'll never experience something quite like that, but like through concert albums, you kind of get a sense in a little bit of what that was. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just such a fascinating thing that we're so used to hearing music that is so produced yeah. that oftentimes are recorded in different recording studios at different times throughout the year mm-hmm. through different, you know, you take, you take someone like a Brian Wilson who spent years and years recording smile or, yeah. and then mastered it and da, 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 like, or whatever that's like, that doesn't happen in one day, but sometimes these concert albums or these live albums they're a one-shot event, yeah. boom, and you're done. And that's what you get. And whatever is produced out of it, I think, is pretty interesting what a band chooses to release. Yeah, cool. And I, I guess it's... I don't. I doubt it's on Richard's list, and it almost made it on my list. But what made me think about this, ultimately, was that Pearl Jam puts out a bootleg recorded album of all of their concerts and have been doing it since, like, 2000. Hmm. They have, like thousands of concerts that they record that they put out for their fans that you can be like oh i was at this very specific concert and i can hear a professionally recorded uh, version yeah. of that yeah and they're three hours long or whatever but you can go buy it for 10.99 on mm-hmm. itunes or whatever i find that a fascinating dedication to a fan base yeah of something that is such an intimate experience uh i don't know i just uh, that's mm-hmm. what made me think of this subject yeah. in general. Yeah. And I think it's well that's an interesting aspect of the the concert as uh album as souvenir or yeah, yeah, a yeah. uh diary of sorts of what happened and what and I, and it also keeps them devoted to making each one special and worthy of of placing in that time capsule. I know I'm kind of like a weirdo but one of the things I do is like after I go to a concert He said it Richard he said he's kind of a weirdo. I'm, yep. I admitted it. I finally acknowledged. I will definitely go on like setlist.fm yeah. and look up and see what songs were played. Yeah. And sometimes I'll build like a playlist in like iTunes and like re-experience it through like their recorded tracks. But it's like, I find that really a mm-hmm. cool way to go back and be like, oh yeah, I remember when they played the song and it was amazing live versus this yeah. version of it but i don't know yeah i'm kind of all over the place right cool now. okay uh, michael chose it richard starts it all right so my first choice is xtc oh, uh cool. bbc one live in con bbc radio one live in concert 1980 oh cool and to michael's point one of the one of the things to enjoy about a live album i think is when it's a document of something that you're never going to be able to see. Yeah, yeah. And that's definitely the case here. Um, XTC hasn't toured in, they stopped touring, what, 82, 1982? So it's been, what, 30 years at this point? 36 years? Oh, a long time. I'm bad at math, you guys. But it's something that I'll never see. And they yeah. were my favorite band growing up. And I was, you always kind of held out against hope that maybe they'll do a reunion tour. Maybe Andy Partridge will get over his stage fright. Yeah. And it just never happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm in the, what era was I'm this? in the, I'm in the, I hope the Smiths never get back together. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, area of like, I don't want to know what like the watered down version of what, how Smith, how great the Smiths were. 
because like I've I've seen more series yeah. semi recently and been like no I don't I don't need to see yeah. it again in life I'm you good. don't think Johnny Marr would give him a, a no I think that wouldn't would, add anything to the equation here I would uh, like I, well I, I saw him when he was with Modest Mouse and he was super and it was like mm-hmm. okay well that's good yeah anyway sorry uh, you were that's saying okay. what arrow what album this would have been for, for on the Black Sea tour okay which I think is a great album to have kind of the snapshot of them. And it's this album from the Hammersmith Play mm-hmm. in London. And it was during the Black Sea tour. And this is the album that comes out before English Settlement, which is the one that's got senses working overtime and is very much an acoustic mm-hmm. type of album, but is sort of the one after the, it's after Drums and Wire. So they get Dave Gregory into the band as a guitar player. The, the sound starts evolving to more of a rock oriented type sound. And I think they've even said that this album was basically an attempt to capture their live sound on a record. Yeah. So then you've got the actual live version of those songs that were an attempt to sound like live songs in the first place. Mm-hmm. And they just, it's a great album to listen to. It's also very frustrating because you hear what a great live band they were. Yeah. Like they were a really great live band, yeah. like high energy. Musicianship, you know, everything you would want in a live band. And you're never going to get to see that again because Andy Partridge just doesn't want to play live and that's yeah. that. So it's great to listen to. It's also incredibly frustrating at the same time. One thing I think of is seeing a performer in a film versus seeing them in a play live. Like, will you get to see the physicality of this performer? Right. You get to see who they are in a moment, how they interact with an audience. Uh, think of like um, the XTC that was probably recording um, Skylarking with Todd Rundgren was this like like you said two two Hitler's one bunker this like right. people were doing everything over and over again till it gets perfect versus having the uh, live excitement that you have in a concert so yeah it it does that was an interesting aspect of it the kind of heartbreak that you feel like oh my god there was this amazing live. Thing that I'll never get to experience, but this is a it's it's good to have this document of it, you know? right? But yeah, oh, and it's cool. my favorite X, and it is my probably my most listenable to on on many replays XCC uh-huh. album. I don't know if I'd say my favorite, but it's I think maybe the one that holds up the most to to repeated replays. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Cool choice. What do you got, Michael? What's your first? Uh, my first one is called Roseland NYC Live by Portishead. And this album came out in 1998, and it was one they recorded uh, earlier that year, or maybe it was even 97, at the Roseland Theater in New York City. Uh, but it was done with a 30-piece orchestra. You know, Portishead is this amazing trip-hop band, and they'd only had a couple albums come out, both of which are perfect, which is wild. And then they came out with this album, and it's also perfect. The only trouble with the album is that it was kind of recorded on a couple, like the albums that the songs that appeared on the actual CD were recorded in a couple different places. They're all done live, but 
they weren't like a true concert, single concert album. And I think that happens every once in a while is you'll have like live albums or concert albums and they have been recorded over a few days from the same yeah, concert. Sure. Yeah. They kind of cut together yeah. bits and pieces and kind of fade the audience cheer in and mm-hmm. out. But this album is incredible. It's like they're a very haunting band. Their sound is very melodic and yeah. deep and just the addition of the orchestra and like the light, you know, patter of clapping in the background, it just like transforms it into like this strange live document that you don't necessarily get from their music. I mean, a lot of their music, you know, is stuff that's, uh, you know, with like hip hop and trip hop, it's like stuff that was pre-recorded from a record that's re-recorded onto something else. And to hear like live scratching is doesn't quite sound the same as something in a studio. Yeah. yeah. It just sounds just more visceral. was just great. I don't know what happened to it. I lost it at some point. But like um what is interesting is that like they put out a DVD of this and it's like the full Roseland concert. Mm-hmm. So it's different than what you get when you buy a CD. Oh. So I think it's tough now when you can't distinguish from a DVD to the CD. It's like was what wh- are we talking about? Just the albums? Or are we talking about like the concert experience with mm-hmm. the DVD as well? I don't know. I don't know. I guess I would kind of allow, since I chose the topic, I would yeah. kind of allow whatever. Yeah. But this was just a a great way to enhance uh, music that you don't think kind of needed it. Mm-hmm. I've seen bands like that at like the Hollywood Bowl. You can see like Bell and Sebastian, they'll play with like the London Phil yeah. harmonic and you're just like, this is such a different live, strange mm-hmm. version of this. Yeah. Or seen David Byrne there with the same sort of thing. It's just like the addition of additional musicians really uh, augments and yeah. changes what you expect yeah. out of the traditional four-piece band or whatever. Well, it seems like what you brought up a couple things that uh, I've I just yesterday I was having a dialogue with uh, Jennifer Lloyd I think about uh, music enjoying music outside and amu- enjoying music with people. Mm-hmm. So when you hear a live album, it emulates somewhat the ideal place to listen to music, which is in a a place where you can resonate with other people who love that group or or love that moment that they're in. So. It is kind of the power of suggestion in the recorded format that everybody's applauding and everybody's clapping. And so that's an interesting component of that. You're also hearing that uh, group hypnosis that happens when a great artist is connecting with thousands of people at the same time. What's funny is I saw as a kid, uh, a, a buddy of mine's dad owned a 
ticket agency before Ticketmaster ate up all the regional ticket agencies. So we would regularly go see, oh, we're going to go see this band called Van Halen in the 90-whatever, or the the Panama tour. And we went to see the Clash and the Combat Rock tour. We got to see a lot of 80s groups, but Men at Work, got to see the Police Synchronicity, got to see a lot of these great live acts. And I remember at the time knowing this was pretty awesome, but it was in a Kemper Arena, which is Kansas City's like biggest arena. So it's like, it'd be like seeing somebody at the Staples Center. You know, you're so far away. Yeah, you that know. you couldn't really that's very feel interesting to the audience. Uh, size definitely matters on like these live albums. Yeah. Like, and I think that it either adds a impressiveness or it's like, okay, well, if everybody's been to, if, Everyone went to the concert at Central Park. Yeah. Then who cares? Yeah. Well, if it's uh, uh, ACDC live at River Plate or whatever they have. There's, in Argentina, where yeah, it's Argentina. like two, 300,000 yeah, people yeah. there. Where the yeah. entire yeah. country went. Yeah. You, you've, there's a thunderstruck starts with 14 minutes of a, hotel, of a helicopter hovering above the audience. So it's like, at that point, the, the force majeure of, the, of the, the experience is pretty impressive, too. But... Uh, because they are known for playing for rocking stadiums and things. But. The only, the only, uh, it's hard to call this a knock on the Roseland album is that it sounds too good. Oh, like yeah. you know, sometimes you go to a live concert and you expect flubs or you expect deviations. It just yeah. sounds perfect, and I yeah. don't know if it was just like recorded that way or mastered that way or whatever. But it just sounds like oh, this sounds kind of studio-ish when... From a performance standpoint, for, like you, or the, rec- have, the audio sounds that's right out of the mixing board? I have versus, no idea. Oh, okay, it, just, yeah. it just sounds yeah. great. And yeah. you're just like, oh, you kind of expect something slightly off, but you know when it's not off, you're like, oh, maybe they just did perform it that yeah. well. I don't yeah, know. yeah. Oh, cool choice. Okay. Um, Richard, what do you got? So my second one, um, I'm going with the one where I think the where the performance happened and who the performance was for played as big of a role as anything else. I'm writing this down. I know what this is. Um, so this is Johnny Cash at Folsom Prison. Uh, okay. Also on my list. Is it? Okay, yeah. great. Oh, right on. Yeah, so this was uh, kind of in the where in an era in 1968 where Johnny Cash's career had kind of hit a nader. Not Ralph Nader, but an actual, like, with an I. Oh. Oof. Guys, I'm sorry about oh. that. Get back on furlough. Uh, should be. <laughs> Take that money away. Um, he, he, he would had just gotten clean or clean for Johnny Cash in the late sixties, early seventies, um, but his his career was kind of in the toilet by this point, and he had been playing these shows for prison at prisons for years, but he had really been pushing for a long time to do a live show based on one of these prison shows and. Basically, I think Columbia decided to go ahead with it because who cares? It's just a Johnny Cash album. It's oh, yeah. gonna. It's probably stiff no matter what. So, goes in and records this out, this incredible, emotional, visceral type album. And it winds up becoming a huge hit and revitalizes his whole career. Oh, cool. Um, and yeah, so much, I think, of this album is... Was a young, young Rick Rubin sitting there at the mixing board. <laughs> producing no, it. No, it was not. No, okay. Sitting behind bars. Sitting yeah, behind exactly. Bars. That's where yeah. I thought you were going with that. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think that, you know, that when you listen to the album, to the track, especially if he's doing Folsom Prison, for obvious reasons, but a lot of the songs like, like a, 
Orange Blossom special, I think he does, or Cocaine Blues. Yeah. That's another one where the audience reaction that he's getting for these lines, talking about having murdered his, you know, these murder ballads and shit like that. And he's getting this like, (sighs) and you think about it, it's like, oh, there's quite a few real murderers. Yeah. In the crowd. Uh, Huh. I read, (laughs) I read, uh, an oral history on Rolling Stone leading up to this with uh, three guys. Uh, it was uh, Marshall Grant who played bass, uh, Fluke Holland who was uh, a guitarist. And, what a great name! Yeah. And uh, oh no, he was a drummer. And Jim Marshall who was like a photographer, a rock and roll photographer. And uh, one of them recounted that when they, before they came out, you know, when the, the most it seems like the most iconic moment of that album is the beginning, the opening. Yeah. And they said, they kind of introduced the band, and then the management kind of said to the prisoners, is like, okay, so Johnny's going to come out. Don't say anything. Don't cheer when you see him. Wait till he says, Hello, I'm Johnny Cash. I hear the train a-coming, it's rolling around a bend. And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when I'm stuck in Folsom Prison And time keeps dragging on But that train keeps rolling Hi, hi I'm Johnny Cash. I'm and, Johnny then, Cash. And, then they kind of oh. like, and then they prompted them to explode in like mm-hmm. applause and everything. And it's amazing that that, that was like an orchestrated oh. element of something... It doesn't really take away from it, but it's like the most iconic moment, yeah. and it's such such an interesting thing for the, for them, especially the prisoners, yeah. to just be like, uh, okay. I guess, sure. I guess right. so. I we don't know what's going on. Yeah. Johnny Cash <laughs> is playing in our prison. I yeah. guess. Yeah. But uh, if you find it, that that Rolling Stone interview is okay. Is, yeah, I want to check that out. Or oral history is wild because mm-hmm. they talk about how it was just like silent when they pulled up, uh-huh. and um, uh how they weren't quite sure what songs Johnny Cash was going to play oh. the other the rest of the band so they yeah. kind of waited for him to sing and they just kind of like oh okay make it up as they went yeah. along they're yeah. like we'll just catch up to him yeah but what an interesting document and like another thing that like I can't remember who said it but like you're never to know someone that was there must yeah. be one of one of the rarest things like the yeah. concert at Central Park I'm sure you, somehow you could find out oh yeah my uncle was there in New York yeah but like for this, it's like I hope my uncle was, was not there. Yeah. Was not there alive. Was it a Merle Haggard who came he up was, to him and said, "Yeah, I was there." <laughs> well, Maria, Merle Haggard was in San Quentin. Yeah, and uh, Johnny Cash came and played a show and basically made Merle Haggard realize, "Hey, I could be doing that instead of yeah. petty crimes." Yeah, and making a hell of a lot more money and not being stuck in here. Mm-hmm. Well, that's cool. It's a great choice. It does seem like this moment where an artist uh, connects his repertoire with his audience in a very impactful way, or like here is somebody who has had been, had been cultivating this mystique so yeah. long and then started really kind of participating in it through drug use. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, it's funny, like last couple, maybe a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about like Barack Obama. Oh, no, no, no uh, talking about uh, uh, JFK and like what the world would have been if he hadn't been killed. Right. We were talking about that on the, oh. the 150th episode. And, this is like a much more reduced, but if he had never gone and played this album, yeah. what would have been a oh. Johnny Cash? Would he have just faded away? Would he have ever recorded anything again? Not, yeah. He probably would have. He probably would have had this weird 
smallish career, who knows, but this seemed to be like the really iconic moment of his life that kind of reinvigorated him. And, you know, these are these things that you never know. Like Richard said at the beginning, like these kind of prison shows were happening and it was just like, okay, I guess we'll record it. Okay. Yeah. We're not going to put that much effort into it. And then they just did it. And it's just like, oh, this is the shot in the arm, Mm -hmm. you know, pardon the drug use pun, but like they kind of restored his career. Very interesting. A comparison would be, Maybe it's on your list, maybe not. The Elvis comeback special where he is playing live, and not that he had ever like really stopped, but uh, being recorded playing live was something that he ha- they hadn't put a lot of that out there. And here he was going back to his kind of bluesy roots and not playing these kind of songs that he did for his travelogue type films. And so, as far as a Sun Records um, Southern boy, you know, getting back his his kind of mojo again that was yeah. well that's funny about the con- the comeback special is that that whole segment the sun records kind of sit down mm-hmm. jamboree jamboree type yeah. one that is only like eight minutes of that comeback special it is one segment where it's, it's like eight minutes yeah. long but that's what everyone remembers, remembers from that there. Yeah. part yeah the, he did the whole thing in front of the big elvis light and right. stuff so all right, dudes, uh, we is at our halftime where you can uh, go check out all our past episodes. Uh, there's only like a million different places you can go do it. You can go to our uh, uh, iTunes category thing and go down, uh, load, rate, and review past episodes. You can go to Sound Stitcher. You can go to iHeartRadio. There's all these different places. Spotify, I think. Can you go to Spotify now? Yes. Just Google Mount Rushmore Podcast. The old shit. Hashtag the old shit. And then you'll find all our past episodes. And they're behind a paywall now, so they're $1,000 per episode. But if you any of you buys one, that would be so cool. Oh, no. Oh, we just got notified they're not, they're not buying. <laughs> We'd appreciate you uh, letting us know which episodes you like, which episodes uh, you don't, which episodes uh, inspired you to uh, record your cool live album. Uh, speaking of live, we are 24-7 on social media. We never sleep. And we're always in dialogue with our fans or people hate us. And they usually find us on our Facebook page, Mount Rushmore Podcast, or Twitter, or Instagram. And they often suggest topics for future episodes. And some fans have gone from being fans to being participants in the podcast. You need not, but you might if you suggest and we ask and you do. So that's out there. That's out there in big time. I put it out there. And we're back. Uh, these guys have been telling us the Mount Rushmore of live concert albums. And Richard is going to tell us his third choice. All right. So my third choice is Nirvana, the MTV Unplugged in New York. Ding, yeah. ding, 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 ding. That is on Corey Wish's uh, list. And it is in the third slots. Uh, so does that mean six points? I got it. I got it on the right slot. Not that we have to have the points right now. I don't know. In the third Shit. spot on the list um, is the Nirvana Unplugged in the third spot. Corey and I, we got a, a mind yeah. meld going You're on. You're making up the rules. So whatever you think. However many points you want to give me, I'm well, okay with. Yeah. I remember one point we talked about if it's in the third, if, I don't know what we talked about. If you pick it as your first and it's on uh, the list, then you get, you get one point. Yeah. If you pick it. As the third, and then it's picked. it's also the third. Is yep. it double points? 
We'll figure it out at the end. I think it's doubled. I believe it's doubled. Yeah, I think what so. Do you, what do you like about this um, show? Well, I think that it's... Not that everybody didn't like this. That's the thing. I mean, it, it's it's such a snapshot of a certain place and time for me. Yeah. You know, I remember watching when the Unplugged came out, you know, a few months before Kurt, Kurt Cobain died. And then, look, it was on MTV like 24-7 yeah. after he died for like months. Um, and then the album came out, and that just sort of picked up more more momentum from it being an actual album. They had planned on releasing a double live album of like stuff that they mm-hmm. had recorded over the years. Yeah, that was the original plan, and they had decided actually it was just too hard for, for Chris Novoselic and Dave Grohl to work oh, on the project. Oh, oh. that's interesting. So they wound up just releasing the uh, MTV Unplugged as an album instead, oh. as sort of a a, a placeholder for mm-hmm. it. It's, it's a it's a portrait of, I, I I think that it's in a different way from the XTC album, but in a way that's somewhat similar. It's frustrating to listen to. For from this case, it's just heartbreaking to know what Kurt Cobain could have done. Yeah, if he'd stayed alive. Mm-hmm. And you can hear the band going in this direction that's starting to move away from the, you know, let's call it the. You know, the Pixies influenced, mm-hmm. you know, loud, quiet, loud, mm-hmm. but everything, even the quiet, it's pretty loud type um, type songs that they were doing. And even just taking these, I think the other thing about it is just taking these songs that maybe had been driven by noise and by, you know, guitar yeah. chords and, and, and loudness. And when you strip all of that away... What you've got are incredible songs. Yeah. to realize that these songs are built on really incredible hooks and riffs and, mm-hmm. you know, Kurt Cobain's, you know, vocal abilities and his ability to tell a story with his through his singing. Um, that kind of comes through even in more so with the acoustic album than it does with the electric stuff. Yeah. What was fascinating, I mean, that that is, this album was so... It just put the you know final period in their career. It was yeah. just like this is this is the final document of this band, but it was so much more important as a live album to include covers of other bands' songs. Yes. Yeah, not only like Bowie, but like songs by the Vaselines and Meat Puppets and, and Meat Puppets. And it was just like, why is Nirvana doing a Vaseline song? Why is Nirvana playing Meat? Like they could be. Why playing are they doing any, a Lead Belly song? They could be playing any songs from their catalog and do versions of them. But at that point, they chose to highlight these other songs. Yeah. And the other thing that I thought was really crazy and weird after that was that these songs were played on K-Rock. Like, these versions of these songs, live versions of these songs were played on 
K Rock. More people al- along with the regular version. Like you could hear uh, all apologies, all apologies, a regular version of the song, and then you could also hear uh, something. You know, uh, I'm trying to think of which one they uh, come as you are. They played come as you are a ton as the live version. And it was just like very strange because you don't hear live versions of songs ever on the radio, right? Outside of like somebody's rock block on the weekend show or, right. or a college radio thing is like here's the live, but like it was very strange. And it was like, oh, this is how big this band is, and this is how important this final document is yeah. of this band. Very, it was very strange, but like very like I don't know. I'm more, I'm almost more struck by. The cover version, because mm-hmm. I always enjoy hearing a very popular band go out and play a cover song and just yeah. like, why are you playing? Says the Weezer fan. Oh, my <laughs> They just put out that album. I don't know why. It's not very good. It's just like, I I don't get it. I don't, I mean, I, I get it. You know, they mm-hmm. put out the Toto thing and like, I guess it was popular and feel so fun and silly, but yeah. like there was, there are versions of like those other songs. There's no... Sorry, there's no yeah. there's no point in that mm-hmm. other than a weird. Either they're fun and stop dead, but I listened to it once. And I was like, I, that, that's enough. I I got mm-hmm. it. I've mm-hmm. heard yeah. these songs a hundred times in my. But you, I don't know. It's strange. I love hearing. I'll say this. I loved. I still love Death Cab for Cutie. They have outgrown playing cover songs. But when I was seeing them in like the early 2000s, you'd go and see them and they'd drop a Bjork song into their set list. And yeah. They'd drop a Cure song into their set list. And you'd be like, why, why is he playing I, Friday I'm in Love? Yeah. Why is he playing a, like a Bjork song? Why is it mm-hmm. so strange? But like as a live band in a concert, you can play whatever you want. Yeah. No one gives a shit. Yeah. And it's, it is interesting. I think of like the, so if, if Nirvana and its members, were also verbal, uh, vocal about using the platform of fame to draw attention to uh, uh, social injustice. So that was one thing that they would talk about, or Kurt or the drummer would talk about. Is it the Bosnian bass player? The, the bass player. Um, I think they were cynical about the platform of the the spotlight and what the spotlight did for you and what your responsibility was to do when you're in the spotlight. So I could see how you would say, well, you're going to use this platform of celebrity to draw attention to um, social problems. And we're going to use the awkward spotlight and cameras that are thrust upon us to to do what we do, and that is be musicians that love music, and we love playing all these songs, and it's not we're not about selling product for our record label. We're about playing well, good tunes. Well, I remember tunes. the same thing, like... Um Andy Vedder and Pearl Jam, they they did that on like their MTV Unplugged. Like he would be writing all these different slogans down his arm, yeah, knowing that he's going to be in the forefront and have like stuff, yeah, you know, his particular cause that he's trying to champion mm-hmm. at the time. It's just like, oh, they understand that this too, this setting is so much more intimate than, yeah, um, what's going to be my next choice, which is the exact opposite of oh. this. Like, <laughs> Which is, let's just get to it. What is it? So my choice, uh, my next choice is Queens Live at Wembley oh, cool. 86, which was at the tail end. This was the last a, a time. A private venue, a small club. <laughs> Only 72,000 people were there. Yeah. You know, it was a small, a smallish yeah. event. But Queen is the quintessential arena 
Yeah. They're the champions, though. They are the champions of arena rock, and Freddie Mercury is the champion of, like, holding everyone in command yeah. as, like, the lead singer. Yeah. And I don't think that... This, is, this might have made my list just because Bohemian Rhapsody is kind of floating out in the zeitgeist of, like, films. One, I haven't seen it, but also just... Queen just, like, whips. They are yeah. so incredible as a band, but, like, even more incredible, like, on stage. Yeah. Especially him. Mm-hmm. And this was their last tour with Freddie Mercury. This was 86. Uh, you know, he was... I don't know if he had AIDS at that time or was HIV positive at that time. And um, they didn't record another... I don't think they put out another album. This Even this concert DVD or CD didn't come out until 92 after he had died. Oh. So this was another thing where we're talking about these documents of some of the last things these people mm-hmm. record, especially yeah. these live performances. And this concert in itself is just amazing. It's like, you know, Live Aid was amazing, but they only played four or five songs. Right. This was, you know, three hours concert of Queen just stomping around yeah. doing when Queen stuff. would play covers of songs that would like lead into their songs like oh. you remember a crazy little thing called love yeah. was like this weird oh yeah yeah 1950s ish yeah. silly but they'd mm-hmm. play like tutti frutti oh and a few other kind of 50s ish kind of songs ah, but okay. you know this was freddie mercury and all of his mm-hmm. flamboyant freddie mercury yeah well, little richard not not far off <laughs> no, that's, <laughs> that's, that's cool but i don't know it's t- i mean it's tough to choose, like, a what queen mm-hmm. do you want to talk about? But, like, for live albums, you couldn't talk about Live Aid because it was yeah. so big and yeah, whatever. It's funny, Queen, I almost feel like I've heard these songs live so many times because of their presence in stadiums at sporting events. The, That's interesting. The, so, it's, it's, I feel you like... You almost expect them to be this 70,000-plus people strong cheer behind whatever you're doing yeah yeah oh that's a cool choice cool choice yeah i did see uh that uh uh queen movie and it was pretty interesting but yeah a lot of it was kind of about his ability to uh to guard to to focus an audience on stage in these huge stadiums like how and i you look around and you wait for well where is he being projected on stage no he's not he's just being big He's being so big that everybody can see him and enjoy him. Have you ever been to anything like concert that big? No. I've... I went to a Lollapalooza, but it, I mean, not 70,000. Like it was, you know, Lilith, 50. Lilith Fair 96, oh, yeah. baby. Hell yeah. Did you really go to Lilith Fair? <laughs> oh, God, it was the worst. Oh, yeah. man. <laughs> wow. I thought that was a joke. I got, uh, there was a line I was in. It was like a line, it was a line that was a formerly a long line that had all this kind of loops to it, but it was quickly ending so i don't know it just made sense to just walk across i wasn't trying to cut in front of anybody 
But I had like 30 women yell at me because they thought I was trying to cut in front of them. So and like, also trying just something about the patriarchy. Yeah, know? yeah. So, um, but I hate people cut too, so whatever. Okay, so, sorry, you were going to say you saw Lollapalooza. I went to a Lollapalooza when I was like a couple years too young for it. I oh. was like 94. Uh-huh. So I was 14-ish, 15-ish, which is like right in that age where you can't really, you don't really know anything. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you but have, you think you do. And you have like no authority and everyone is taller and bigger than you. And like as close as you want to get to the stage, you're just like, I am not getting anywhere yeah. close to <laughs> any of this. So you just like end up sitting kind of at the back of things and like along the edges and just the s- smell of pot just like yeah. wafts over everything. You're just like, ah, oh, I'm not cool enough to <laughs> see even hit your smelling other people's the world of adults. pot. Yeah. It's so strange to be 14, 15, and just yeah. in like a concert world, just like that was. I the guess m- I'll, I guess I'll watch uh, the Breeders warm up concert <sighs> again. I think I was 12, 10 or eleven when I started going to concerts because like it seemed like a friend's mom was dating the lawyer for this concert venue, the Uptown yes. Theater in Kansas City, <laughs> and I remember seeing. I think the first concert I ever saw was The Knack, so that was like. The late seventies, seventy nine. That was or my, yeah, yeah. That was actual actual my Sharona was on the radio, but I was just this weird kid who was wondering how the fuck did this kid get in here? I was like that too a little bit. Yeah. Okay, uh, Queen, great choice, Richard. Your final, my last one. I kind of I, I knew I needed a seventies rock album on here, and there are several to choose from. Uh, the one I went with, though, is the one closest to my heart, which is Cheap Trick Live at Budokan. Oh, okay. Cool. Um, because we wouldn't... Where else... Where would we be if we couldn't make a million huge in Japan jokes? Yeah. And we wouldn't be there if it wasn't for Cheap Trick Live at Budokan. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cheap Trick and 78 were a band that had put out three albums at that point of varying middling to sphere uh, commercial success, even though they were kind of art- artistic kind of critic starlings. Um, but they managed to be huge in Japan. Literally, they were, they were, they were, they were basically called the by the, the American Japanese Beatles. Press, the American Beatles, yeah. exactly. Uh, I was uh, considering a '70s sort of giant rock band as a choice. Uh-huh. Obviously, I went with Queen. But when I was looking at this one, I read some sort of comment that was like, "And you know, if you've made it at Budokan." You've made it in the rock world. And then, of course, immediately I thought of like Spinal Tap. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and they the want to go back scene. to the Tokyo, Tokyo Dome, whatever. Ginormo Dome. Ginormo Dome. And it's just like, my immediately thought of like, really? If you made it in Japan, I guess you just made it in Japan. That doesn't necessarily mean you've dominated yeah. the world. That's yeah, like, that, that's why that's a cliche. You and Godzilla <laughs> yeah. Yeah, are big in Japan. Yeah. What. Was there a certain track off of it? It's the whole thing. Well, the, the, uh, I want you to want me. Yeah, I want you to want me, and it's also interesting because if you if you li- go listen to the album version of "I Want You to Want Me," yeah, it's a very different song. Yeah, it's it almost mid- seems like big bandy kind of. It's mid tempo. Yeah. It's kind of got a little bit of a country uh, feel, swing uh-huh. feel to it. Uh-huh. Um, it's just very different than the version that we know of from the live yeah. album.
I mean, other songs like Surrender sounds like Surrender. I mean, and it's a live version. They're a Dynamite live band, so it's going to sound great. But I Want You to Want Me is, you know, that's an all-time classic song. Yeah, I wonder And ha- you wouldn't, and, and but it had already come out and come and gone, and people really didn't care for it uh, because of the arrangement, and they, yeah. that's not what they wanted. And yeah. they heard this kind of rock, you know, big kind of almost glam rockish uh, uh, sound. That's what put it over the top. I think the Beastie Boys have sampled. This is the first song yeah, off this our is, next album. This is the work cheap trick, and this is the first song off of our next album. It's called "I Want You, you. to Want Me." I feel like That's, I was introduced to that album somewhat through uh, "Fast Times at Ridgemont High." Oh, sure. I feel like <laughs> Mike Damone giving Mike his Damone. speech about the, uh, <laughs> the cheap trick. Yeah, probably where a lot of people were too. But and it it it's. There are very few bands where their live album is the biggest album of their career. Mm-hmm. I mean, usually, a lot, most of the time, the live album is perhaps a complete throwaway. Yeah, just done to fulfill some sort of contractual obligation. Yeah, you know, even at best, it seems to be. Oh, we like you know, we want the bands to have some sort of memory of of having seen us in this this tour. So it's sort of an artifact mm-hmm. rather than something that's released for commercial success. Yeah, and. That's not true with this. This was the album that put, made them Cheap Trick, mm-hmm. and is far and away their highest selling album. Yeah, and there's just not a lot. Like Frampton, I guess, would be another yeah, one. Yeah, I think that double album uh, comes alive would also show that Frampton had some more blues lick chops than right than being just a Barry Gibb looking, you know, right handsome matinee idol kind of guy. So I could see why that would benefit him, but. Uh, I can also see Rick Nielsen's like guitar pyrotechnics as something that stands out on in the live. Oh sure, all too. the the goofy ass shit that he's doing, and you can hear it in the live album because it's the Budokan seats like twelve thousand, I think, and they're just it's like the Beatles are there. Yeah, that's how loud and screamy and yeah and sort of into it the the crowd is. So every time he throws a pick out to the crowd, <sighs> yeah, yeah, that's starts cool. all over again. Michael, wrap it up. Um, where an album like that, and a lot of these albums uh, don't seem overproduced or overthought out, uh, My Last Choice is a very artistic, overly thought out. Oh. It is Talking Heads Stop Making Sense oh, from 1984. Cool. Very good choice. Cool. Where I, well, as a concert, I own this DVD. I love watching this DVD. Yeah. But in terms of just the way it builds in terms of music, is very interesting. Yeah. At the beginning of the film, David Byrne, and I realized I screwed this up last last week, two weeks ago, when you we were talking about comic book, mm-hmm. uh, is John Byrne. Oh, John Byrne, yeah. It's funny, when, when this was like on its, on its heels, I was like, oh, I totally screwed up his name over oh. and over. But David Byrne walks out to like, uh, you know, apl- the applause of the audience, and he puts down a little cassette recorder, and then he just has like this little cassette Casio, this yeah. weird like click track of like um, Psycho Killer, and he just kind of plays along acoustically. Yeah. Can't relax 
And then for the next song, Tina Weymouth comes out and she starts playing just the bass for the song Heaven. Then um, Chris Franz comes out, the drummer, and they just start building up their band over yeah. the course of five, six, seven songs until you get to, um, I forget which one it is, but uh, Burning Down the House. And all of a sudden, the full band is there. Yeah, And it's such a different concert experience. And obviously, it's a very produced thing. You know, yeah, Jonathan right. Demi was the director for it, and uh, you know, David Byrne, you know, noted avant garde yeah. weirdo. musical weirdo. They wanted to create something that wasn't just a concert, but a concert movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and I guess that's where I have a hard time like distinguishing things that are made for film as live performances, made for like MTV Unplugged was. A taping. A it taping, was a TV show taping, a TV ultimately. Show taping. This in itself is like, there's a concert album that came out of it, but it's also very much so a concert movie. And the visuals are as important as anything with, you know, David Byrne in his, you know, big suit. And yeah. Singing uh, Naive Melody with mm-hmm. the, the lone um, standing lamp and all the visuals around. So it's hard to kind of disentangle it. But if you just listen to the album itself, it's just like a great fucking album that slowly builds, that gets into it, and it's just like, it's just just incredible. And I I don't know, I think that like, to have just kind of mastered the live album concept and live video concept in 1984, and, Mm -hmm. you know, Talking Heads were soon done after that, 86 or so. They're just like, well... We've done it all. What more do you want? This album also, and the concert too, has like um, Tina Weymouth and Chris um, France are members of like uh, Tom, 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 Tom Club, Club. and uh, they play one of their songs, and it's just like, oh yeah, another band is here playing in the middle yeah. of the concert as they're setting up something else, mm-hmm. and it's just like, oh, you didn't really expect that from a Talking Heads, or maybe you did. I don't know if they did that often, mm-hmm. but... You know, it's kind of cute yeah. and fun to get an, an extra song from another band mm-hmm. in there. I don't know. Does stop making sense? And some of the Talking Heads' career feels like, what if art students did music? And he, when hearing Byrne talk about sculpting that concert and identifying things from Indonesian shadow puppet theater and Japanese theater and thinking in his weird art student kind of way how do I put on a show and how can I start in a minimalist and then become a maximalist by the Mm. end? Or how do I create dynamic? Borrowing things from different theater cultures and, and, and using stagecraft. Whereas before they were like the third band at CBGB basically playing in a toilet, you know? So I I could, I could see why you would take that. Um, Well, it's interesting because like, you know, the idea of stagecraft has gone so far above and beyond. We went to go see U2 last year. We got like free tickets through a family member who couldn't use them. And they had this huge, like we saw them at uh, the forum here in LA and they had this set that was like multiple parts that had like 
they had like the A set, they had this middle set oh, thing wow. with like projections, and they had another set where they'd play other songs. And it's just like some of it is so overblown, you felt like, oh, I guess you two has to do this. Yeah. This they is how hard you could see them working hard. Yeah, it's like they, they don't just they aren't just four guys that are performing on a stage now. Mm-hmm. They are they have to have this huge middle projection thing that comes down the super stage from one side of the arena to the well, do other. You think they, but like it's, Britney Spears does that too, and like Madonna eventually did that. Like all these people eventually grew past yeah. just like a few people playing music, mm-hmm. which I think is I gotta think that they're those guys would happily not incur the expense <laughs> of all that shit and that they really I can see some of them doing it because so those fans in the back row can see they know they're not getting out of the stadium business but if they can give a show to that person who paid the, a lot of money for that lot, bleeding nosebleed seed yeah I, I can see why you would do that but it does seem to be a phallus <laughs> <laughs> when ACDC <laughs> brings out ACDC brings out about 20 different phalluses when you see their show and they don't get rid of anything they still got a big inflatable Rosie they still got a, they got a train and then they have like 70 cannons like everything's a dick on stage <laughs> and so uh, and, but there's nobody complaining in that audience so uh, but yeah this in his book like how music works or Byrne talks a lot about his Way of entering music through, yes, he was interested in music, but also from an art student kind of standpoint. And stop making, or uh, Psycho Killer is like the first song he ever wrote. Mm. You imagine coming on stage <laughs> like a like a subway busker with this boombox and a guitar and playing the, the first song you ever fucking wrote and starting off in really from the very beginning. Uh, I love, there's a great doc about Bernie Worrell that, keyboard player who was just really channeling the the sound of Saturn or the universe or like <laughs> yeah he was somewhere <laughs> off at another yeah. he was in another planet for yeah. sure and uh, and the the talking heads would just kind of like turn to him and go okay Bernie <laughs> and he just had these crazy sounds that uh were part of his mental illness <laughs> but but yeah what an amazing show uh cool okay guys we did it we did it, right? Yep. Uh, so I want to thank uh, listener Corey Wish, who gave us three submissions and then I augmented uh, it. So I'm pulling, reaching in the Borglum bag and pulling out uh, the Borglum bag list, one of which you've heard already. Uh, Corey's first choice was Alice in Chains Live. Um, and he, he says they sound better than they have any right to be. Alice in Chains at the Brooklyn Theater 1996 for MTV Unplugged. Oh, sorry, that's Anderson Dadu's uh, suggestion. Um, okay. Uh, Metallica, S&M, was Corey Wishes. Nirvana Unplugged is Corey Wish uh, in the third place. And Let It Be uh, by this band called The Beatles. Is that a live album? It's on stage in the middle Some of... Some of them songs, not all of them. Like half of them, maybe not even half. Not even half? Maybe half. I thought they're all... No, they're no, not no, all no. live? No. Okay. No. There are some live songs on the album. Well, that's in the Borgham bag. Well, you know what I found compelling about that is... Um, no, it's a good page. It's, it's, it's fine. Well, there's a little doc about Let It Be where it, basically this is the sound <laughs> of... That, have they ever done a, a documentary about the Beatles? Oh, we should see Yeah, it. about time. So <laughs> those lovable ads, people are interested in finding out a little bit more about them. Uh, it was supposed to be their 
they're they're way back in to live performing and they're way back they're moving forward as a band and that's why you have like billy preston there to give it that fun organ thing going on and and then it ended up being the last a nightmare, right? <laughs> yeah, the last, last stand, the last of them. But uh, I do think some playing live is probably an opportunity for a band or most bands to kind of remember why they're together. Whereas the studio, I'm sure, can be a drudge. So sure. Okay, the choices um, are. Um, let's see here. We both did we. Folsom Prison was which one for which? What was this? It which? ended up being two okay. two points for each of us. Okay. If, they, if you're choosing that one. Okay, yes, I am. Um, and I'm going to choose uh, Johnny. Oh, we already got that. Um, it kind of blew my mind, so I kind of uh, want to choose. I want to go listen to Portishead, Rosalind, New York City Live. And um, I want to go rock what was your last thing oh i want to go listen stop making sense to be in the fourth so i need my third is that right yes and that third would be uh that's the nirvana unplugged okay one uh in the third slot so this has seven points for me total and eight points for richard that round that sounds fair wow okay Thanks, guys. Um, hey, uh, does anybody hear one last song? No, not Come really. On. <laughs> okay. oh, we're ready to go home. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's 11 o'clock. I'm Tracy, old. Tracy Ullman comes out just like, go home. <laughs> go, go home. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. Uh, it's up to you, Burbank. No. Okay. Yeah, All right. Yeah. Uh, this has been the Mount Rushmore of Yada Yada. I am, as always, I'm Jeff. I'm Richard. I'm Michael.